This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Matt Woodley. Back in July, in the midst of all the COVID stuff, we missed a really important American anniversary. It was the 30-year anniversary of a law that was passed that has helped millions upon millions of Americans. It's called the American Disabilities Act, or ADA. Before it was passed, it was uh, shockingly common how often persons with disabilities were discriminated against in this country. But the the law was passed, uh, actually the way it was passed was also a remarkable feat of bipartisan cooperation. It was sponsored uh, by both a Democrat and a Republican. It was uh, passed on to the president by a Democratic-led Congress, and it was signed off by a Republican president, George Bush. It's really remarkable what can get done in politics sometimes. Let me take you back to another incident in American history, this one not so nice. Back in May of 1830, President Andrew Jackson, against the objection of strong Christian leaders like Jeremiah Everts, a man you should read about, a new hero of mine, against his objections and others, Jackson passed a law called the Indian Removal Act. It forced 60,000 indigenous peoples in this country to take a perilous journey from their homes to what was called Indian Territory. Along the way, numerous people got sick or died along the way, and it became known as the Trail of Tears. I use those two examples because they show the power of politics, the power to do good or to do evil, the power to bless or to harm, the power to ennoble human dignity or to degrade people made in the image of God. I'm starting today a two-part sermon series on Christians and politics. I'll preach today obviously what I'm doing, and then I'll preach in two weeks from today, part two. And the first question we might have is, why? Why preach on politics? I mean, isn't there enough? Isn't there enough negative thing? And why would you be so foolish, Father Matt? Has the bishop approved this? And yes, he did. And he approved the first sermon, the first service. We know that politics can be corrupt. We know it can be heartbreaking. We know it can be exhausting. We know it can be aggravating. And yet at the same time, as Christians, we also believe that it is one limited, imperfect, fallen, like everything we do and everything we create is fallen, but it's one limited but worthwhile way to show love to our neighbors, to seek righteousness and justice and to promote what Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah called the well-being of the city, the flourishing of the city. It's not a luxury. I was reading a quote from our colleague and ministry father, Dr. Esau McCauley. He's written a great new book called Reading While Black. And as I was reading that, just one line, just boom, cut me to the core. Reverend Macaulay, or Dr. Macaulay said this, I, black Christians have never had the luxury of separating our faith from political action. Honestly, some of the churches I've been in, 
had the luxury or seemed to have the luxury of separating politics from faith. Black Christians, our brothers and sisters, have not had that, and I think they're right, and I think they have a challenge for us. So that's basically really short why we're doing this, but how are Christians called to engage in politics? The how question is what I want to talk about over the next two sermons. You see, it's easy to say, vote for this candidate, don't for that candidate, support this party, don't support that party. And those are really important things for Christians. Those are really important convictions we will have to come to. But it's much more difficult to become a certain kind of person as we engage in politics. When we talk about becoming a certain kind of person, we're talking about virtues. And virtue is who we are becoming. So this week I want to talk about the virtue of fierce civility. In two weeks I want to talk about the virtue of prophetic humility, or probably more accurately, humble propheticness. But that just doesn't have quite the ring to it as prophetic humility. So fierce civility this week, two weeks, prophetic humility. And here's the thing that Peter's going to say, at the core of your being, how you do this, the core of your being and the core of the passage we heard read, the literary center and the emotional and the spiritual center of this passage, I believe is verse 15, where Peter says, St. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is the oomph of the how. That everything flows from that. So these virtues that I'm going to talk about, they all flow from that. That's how we do it. We honor Christ as Lord in, in our hearts, and I believe these two virtues will flow from that. I'll get to that in just a minute. But what do I mean? Well, well let's look at this passage first, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. And just a little context. So this was written around 65 A.D., and um, at the time, it's been esti historians estimated that there were maybe 5,000 to 10,000 followers of Jesus, many of them coming out of Jewish backgrounds and maintaining their Jewishness, but following Jesus as Messiah, some of them coming out of pagan or Gentile background, but a very small minority of people were following Jesus at the Roman Empire in this time, which had probably 60 million people. So that's like 0.00001% of the population were Christians. And yet in the midst of this, and, and they were routinely mocked, they were marginalized, they were uh, treated with contempt and scorn. And yet in the midst of this, Peter calls for a bold hope in the power of the resurrection. And he says, he calls us to a life of fierce civility. Now what do I mean by that? Civility simply means public manners. Or it's the way we order our life publicly. Especially, Peter says in this context, before the watching world. Before the world that's skeptical. Before the world that's mocking you. Before the world that's slandering you. How are you going to behave? You behave with civility. Public manners flowing from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The word fierce, I went back and forth whether I should use fierce or bold, but I like fierce better. And I'm using the third definition for fierce in the Oxford English Dictionary if you're a nerd about words. And that third definition means showing strong feeling and energetic activity. 
Because as Christians, we believe there are certain things about the vision of Jesus handed down through the centuries that promote human flourishing and certain things that lead to human degradation. And we take those things with the utmost seriousness because Jesus is Lord. They are things worth living for. They are things worth dying for. They're things risking our reputation. They're things risking going to jail. They're things risking our being slandered. That is the fierce part. Peter puts it this way in verse 13. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I love that word zealous there because in the original Greek, it's the word for boiling. It's hot. You put a, a pot of water on a gas flame and it, it heats underneath and the water begins to bubble and then begins to boil and then it begins to roar. It takes on the heat of the flame. Well, Jesus is the flame. He's the flame underneath us and he's burning his love. He's burning his goodness up through us, making us hot with the things that he's passionate for. That's the fierce part. Let me give an example. And, and throughout the two sermons, I'm going to give you some examples. And I'm going to try not to be partisan, but I am going to be political. Because you can't be unpolitical. You really can't be. We just don't live in an unpolitical world. There are implications for our faith and life that have political implications. But I'm going to try not to be partisan. So if I use examples over the two weeks, they'll probably even out. But here's an example. Something that hit me this week. This week, we found out that the U.S. government has set a cap on newly arriving refugees. They set a cap every year by executive order of 15,000. Now, just to give you some context, the average has been over the years, over the last few decades, somewhere between 85,000 to 140,000. So for a nation of 330 million people, 15,000, to me, that seems abysmally small, meager. Now, just so you know, I'm not being partisan. Under President George Bush, the first George Bush, the number was tens of thousands higher than it was under President Obama. So there's been a downward slide that Democratic and Republican presidents have participated in. Why does this matter? Why should we be fierce about this? Well, first, because we're living in the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, and it's not getting better. Second reason is because the number of Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be taking into this country next year will be a 90% drop from the number of Christians we have been taking in in the past. These are our brothers and sisters of Christ. Many of them are coming from places of profound persecution. That hurts the church. Third reason is the Bible has a lot to say about how we treat refugees, the foreigner, the stranger among us. It's something worth our zeal. That's just one example. It's fierce, and yet it's fierce civility. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You see that? It's just like a, it's like a cycle. It's like a big gear. Somebody says something evil or does something evil. 
we respond with something evil, do something evil. Somebody reviles, we respond with reviling. It just keeps cranking around and around and around, and the gears keep turning. That is what one person, one political commentator has called what we're living in today is politics of contempt, where we hold each other in contempt. And if you don't think your side does it, well, they do. Everybody seems to be doing it these days. It's the air we breathe. There was a survey that was taken. It asked Republicans and Democrats, said, do you believe people from the other party are downright evil? Downright evil, 40% said yes. Do you believe they lack traits of basic humanity? One out of five Republicans, one out of five Democrats said yes, they do. Actually, I'm not taking sides, but the Republicans were a little bit better on that one. But it's called, pretty close to call. Last one. Do, would you believe that the country would be better off, this is the literal question, if large numbers of the other political party dropped dead? 20% of Americans said yes. Downright evil, subhuman, I wish you were dead. That is the politics of contempt. But I love this, what Peter says. So he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, I love that little phrase. Church, we are contrary people. Not contrary difficult, but contrary different. Different to this cycle of contempt. Why? Because of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Everything lines up under that. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's our ultimate king. We give our ultimate loyalty to him. If you're baptized, you have made a public declaration of, or it was made on your behalf in the church, that you line up under King Jesus. He is your Lord. On the contrary, he says, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, if you know your Bible, you know what Peter, the very Jewish Peter, you know what he's talking about? He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God called a man Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation, the Hebrew people, chapter 12, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That story is still going on. And we're a part of it. We are grafted in to that story by the grace of Jesus. Us Gentiles, we're, we're grafted into that. It's the air we breathe, not the polluted air of contempt, not the poison of evil for evil or reviling for reviling. We breathe in the blessing of Jesus. We breathe out his blessing to the world. Someone says something evil, we respond with a blessing. Since somebody reviles us, we respond for a blessing. When the world loses its mind, the church cannot lose its soul and get out from underneath the loving lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, he's going back to the very Jewish story, Psalm 34. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The early church, didn't, they didn't wring their hands and go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We, we were so politically marginalized. Now, if God gives political opportunities, we should take them as a steward, as a servant to the world. I'll talk about that more in two weeks. But if we're politically marginalized, the early church didn't worry about that. They followed St. Peter's advice, seek peace and pursue it. What are we pursuing? We're pursuing relationships. We're pursuing to win. Win relationships. Win hearts. You may have heard after the death of uh, Justice Ginsburg, you may have heard the, the legendary stories of the friendship between the late Justice Scalia and the late Justice Ginsburg, the very right of center, devout Roman Catholic Scalia, the left of center, Jewish Ginsburg. They had a long and tender and affectionate friendship for years. I heard a story about um, Antony Scalia, Justice Antony Scalia. He had a, another judge, a colleague, not one of the Supreme Court justices, but another colleague was visiting him in his chambers, and he saw two um, uh, vases of, of roses, two dozen roses. And the guy said, well, what are, what are those for? And he said, oh, I got to get those to Ruth. It's her birthday today. It's Ruth's birthday today. Now, if you know anything about these two people, you know that they were both fierce and came down with different conclusions about how to interpret law. But this friend said, so this friend said, come on, can you name me one major significant Supreme Court case in which you have gotten Justice Ginsburg to change her mind by your friendship? And Justice Scalia said, you know, there are some things more important than winning. That's a thing called love. And I love Ruth, and I'll fight fiercely for what I believe is right, but I won't stop loving her. I won't, I don't need to cut off my relationship with her. I worry that we're losing that in this country. And as a church, don't lose that. Never lose that. We don't have to lose that. You know, it seems like there's an idea that I see in places. It, it's like, the idea is we don't need civility. We don't need integrity. We don't need character. We just need to get the policies we want that we agree with. That has hurt a lot of people. And I would say, just to make sure that you hear it really clearly from the church, character still matters. Virtue still matters. Integrity still matters. Incivility is like dumping toxic waste upriver. It always flows down. It will always affect us. It will always pollute our political climate. And we're living in that. And I'm not just talking about one person or one party. I'm talking about the climate we're living in. Now, 
I want to emphasize too that civility, again, is not just being nice, because look at what Peter says in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect is civility. It's public manners. It's treating people as if they are made in the image of God, as if Christ has died for them and he loves them. That's civility, but it's also fierce. Did you hear that? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. People need the hope of Jesus. That's why Peter in this letter, chapter 1, verse 3, he begins by pointing, pointing us back to the resurrection of Jesus. He says, that's our hope. That's what we're calling people into. The world needs that. The world desperately needs that. Every person you meet needs that. They not only need to be treated with civility, they need the hope of Jesus. That's something worth fighting for. You know, as Anglicans, every Sunday we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate the Eucharist because we believe that at the very heart of our faith, the non-negotiable of our faith, we have a story, a reality of a God who doesn't just love us, but he came for us. He, pours, he pursued us. Seek peace and pursue it. Who first pursued us? Jesus did. He said, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. And he pursued us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at me. There's no God behind me, as theologians like to say, as Dr. John Clark likes to say. And Jesus came and he said, as we celebrate around this table, this is my body given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Poured out love that we did not deserve. We are saved. We are accepted. We are embraced. We are loved. We are the pursued. We are the beloved. Not because of the great things we've done, but because of the grace of Jesus and our faith in him. That's the only reason. Do you know what that does to those gears of contempt? It's like sticking a big wedge in it. The cross of Jesus is like a wedge in those cycles of contempt in the human heart. That's the way it should work. That's the way it's supposed to work in every believer. It stops it. That is a beautiful thing. Not just politics, but all systems, all human systems of superiority or self-righteousness. So we stand not above people, we stand not against people, but we stand with people in solidarity. One of the great words in Catholic political philosophy is this idea of solidarity, that we stand with people, people who have been sought by God, people who have been loved by Jesus. So I want to end with a, with a three-part civility checkup. Imagine you're going to your doctor, and he gives you three things to think about. So here are three things to just ask yourself, to pray about, to seek the Lord about. First, are you fierce, are we fierce, on behalf of those who are vulnerable, especially the vulnerable? Bible, Bible, you just have to rip out huge chunks of the Bible. And you'd have to go against everything this diocese and our bishop stands for. Are you fierce on behalf of the vulnerable? I read um, something from the President of World Relief 
great organization we've partnered with for 20 years. And he said, when we advocate for those whom the Bible commands us to ad advocate for, whether the unborn, the prisoner, or the refugee, we're not getting political. If by political you mean partisan, like supporting just a candidate or a party. But if we define politics as the art of good policy for the flourishing of the nation, yes, then we are engaging in politics. But as followers of Jesus, we are not excused from this discussion. Rather, we are commanded to be in it. Remember I said we have a, we have a great opportunity in politics to do good, to bless, to promote the flourishing of the city. That's the first question. Are we fierce on behalf of the vulnerable? Secondly, can you be civil in your thought and your speaking and your posting towards people? Let's just start with this church. Or if you're involved in the diocese, this diocese. Again, you can be fierce. You can be fierce like Antony Scalia was fierce. But are you civil? Is your heart tender? Is there sympathy? I think we would all be a lot better off, well, if we're on social media, to spend less time on social media and more time just actually talking to real people, face to face, flesh and blood. Just sit with them. And as Bishop Stewart loves to say, start with a question. Not an accusation, but start with a question. I see you posted that. I was just wondering how you came to that conclusion. I'm really curious. I see you believe such and such about such and such candidate. Uh, I just, I want to hear your thoughts on that. I want to get more context for you. You see what that does? That's, that's, that's sympathy. That's brotherly love. That's a tender heart. You can get into the fierce stuff. You can disagree. You can instruct. You can exhort. You can do all that kind of stuff. But you start with civility. Third question. Are you civil towards those who are outside the church? I love what Peter says, seek peace and pursue it. This little tiny church in the midst of the vast Roman Empire, you seek peace, you pursue it. Let me tell you a story about the church at its best. It's a true story. It happened this last May as the COVID-19 was raging through New York City. A Christian organization came in and set up a 68-bed tent, tent hospital right in the middle of Central Park. You would think that would be an amazing thing, but it actually created a lot of controversy because it was a Christian organization, because the leader of that Christian organization has said some unfortunate, uncivil things, and also because that organization has traditional Christian beliefs about the exclusivity of Christ and, and about uh, salvation in Jesus and about human sexuality that we would agree to. So that created a lot of controversy. People wanted them to leave. The mayor of New York City publicly criticized them, chastised them, said, we're gonna be watching those people, we're gonna keep an eye on them. Well. People, Christians came from all over the country, Christian doctors, Christian nurses, mechanics, volunteers, working for just peanuts, really, when the doctors could have been making $400 an hour at the local ERs. And those ERs couldn't get enough doctors at $400 an hour to come. And yet that Christian tent hospital got people to come for just a minor stipend. Many of them worked 21 days in a row. They were on 21-day assignment, and some of them worked all 21 days, 12-hour shifts, 14 hours, 21 days in a row, night shifts. 
They worked and worked. They took care of the dying. They took care of the sick. They took care of the poorest of the poor. There was probably only two, or a handful, we'll say, of Caucasian people. All of them were poor immigrants, poor Latinos. And yet those doctors loved them. Those patients, if they had to move, if they had more serious complications, they had to move to the big hospital, the real hospital, they cried. Their family said, no, don't move them. We want them here. My family has never received such love and care. Well, New Yorkers started to see what was going on. So the media really didn't report on this at all, but there would be hundreds of people lining upside the, outside the tent hospital, cheering, applauding, standing ovation for the workers at the tent hospital. I saw hardened secular people who said, they were on video, they said they were, they, were, they were weeping. They were saying, I hate what these people believe, but I'm so glad they're here. <laughs> we need them to come. This guy, this tough financial guy, he's just weeping. Now here's a story you won't have heard because it's from an eyewitness account, and it did not appear anywhere in the media. So breaking news, folks. Get ready for this. So Mayor Bill de Blasio, who had publicly criticized them, eventually paid a visit. And he said, I don't want any press around. I just want to come in with a couple of my people. And he, he raved about them. He thanked them. He brought them gourmet pies. And he said, I'm so thankful for what you're doing. Thank you for coming. Now you may wonder, how does Father Matt know this story? Well, my son was there. He was an eyewitness. He saw all of this. He worked at the hospital. That, my friends, is the church at her best. That is the, yeah, hallelujah. That is the church at her very best, laying down her life for people. Does that always happen? No. Sometimes the church has been hated. Sometimes the church has been hated for doing good. Sometimes the church has been hated for messing up. Sometimes the church has been sinning. I'll talk about that in two weeks. But our ultimate aim is not to win political victories, as important as those are, and as worthy as they are. Our ultimate goal is to win hearts, to win people, to share the hope that is within us. Let me ask you this. Is there some cause? Is there some person? Is there some group of people that deserves your fierce civility? Maybe it's refugees. Maybe it's the unborn. Maybe it's the homeless. Maybe it's just people that hate Christianity or the church. To use Justice Scalia, is there someone who could appreciate a dozen roses from you, literally or metaphorically? Someone that needs your fierce civility. You seek peace and pursue it. May the Lord Jesus fill us with courage and tenderness for the worthy calling of fierce civility. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. 
As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.